played soccer a couple years in college, and we did a lot of things that probably don't make a lot of sense to the average person. We came to a campus in a town where there wasn't a lot to do two weeks before class started. And even if there were diversions, it wouldn't have made much of a difference because we were either in practice or recovering from practice all day during those two weeks. We'd be at practice at 6 a.m. some mornings, even after the semester started. And we worked in a way that made every muscle in our body ache. Even just to get to that point, guys would put in work out of season just so they can be in shape on day one. During the season, guys would stay late after practice to work out further, to work on skills. All this in addition to the rigors of class. And there was one directive for the team that the coach continually repeated. Our goal is to win championships. That was it. That was our bullseye. It was why we did all of it. Some guys had scholarships, and so maybe the cost-benefit ratio made a little more sense, but not everyone did. And we all love the game, but there's a lot of places you can play soccer that you don't have to do all that. So why put oneself through the punishment? Because we were part of a team whose goal was to win championships, and everybody wanted to be a part of that goal. It was why we punished ourselves. It was why guys like me who weren't good enough to contribute to victory didn't play very much. It was also why players like me stuck with it. Because we wanted to contribute any way we could and be part of something bigger than ourselves. We who follow Jesus are all part of something bigger than ourselves. It's much bigger than a team, or organization, or even a nation. We are God's people, and our call to purpose is much higher than any human achievement. But like a team, or organization, the purposes to which we are called inform how we live, what we are to do, and why we do it. We're in the middle of going through Genesis, and we're looking at a few highlights within the book that speak to our identity. And we're framing it as the story in our blood. That is, stories that inform who we were created to be, both as individuals and corporately as the people of God. In the first two weeks, we looked at a couple stories that speak heavily to who we are as, individual, as individuals, as humans created by God. We looked first at Genesis 1 how God created us in his image, giving us both innate responsibility and value. And then we looked at how our sin affects our relationship with God in Genesis 3, and how God continues to pursue us in spite of it. Today we're looking at the very beginning of the story of Abram, who gets, later gets named Abraham by God. But it's a passage that is foundational to the corporate identity of all who would follow the God of the Bible. Now Genesis is kind of split in terms of the history that it addresses, or rather maybe one could say how it addresses history. First 11 chapters tend to be more concerned with origin questions. 
creation of the world, creation of humans, the entry of sin into our reality and its effect, things like that. When we get to chapter 12, the gears shift a little bit. And the rest of the book is often referred to as the history of the patriarchs because it follows what are, could be recognized as sort of the founding fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons, who are the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the history is called patriarchal history because in this time, in this context, there's a patriarchal context where family units were often much bigger than the nuclear families we know now in our households. They were much much bigger, often centered around a patriarch for pooling of resources, for safety, things like that. And today's passage is the beginning of that gear shift in Genesis, and it zeroes in on Abram before God changes his name. And we see God make a profound promise to him. As we look at what God said, we're going to see God tell him things that inform our identity. And these things are going to show us what it means to be called as God's people. What we are called to do because of it. And we see that God calls Abram to do something that comes with a promise. God's address begins with a command. He says, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. First of all, God's words to Abram show us that God's call is unearned. We are not told anything that Abram has done to prompt the call. The closing verses of chapter 11 actually begin this section, and they look at Abram's family. And we're not told anything about his family that has prompted the call. Instead, the names of his family members highly suggest that this was a family that probably worshipped the Akkadian moon god. There's nothing of note to tell us why Abram is called. It is God-initiated and God-ordained. It's sometimes the case where we may try to demarcate where God is at work. Or maybe where God can work. Maybe here, but not there. It's easier to think to ourselves that God may not call us to certain work. And that might be the case, but at the same time, we cannot dismiss his call for something just because we're not expecting it. Even though we might think to ourselves, well, I could never do that. That's a job for someone with more gifts, someone with different gifts. worth noting that God often uses candidates that are least expected by humans to accomplish certain work. And so we can speculate as to why God called Abram, but ultimately, in this case, all we know is that he initiates a call with a man from a family that probably worshipped a moon god. That's where he finds Abram. That's where he begins to use him. And he does serve as an example of faith. He responds to God's call. He obeys 
and he goes. We see him build an altar to worship when he encounters God. But he's also very, very human, just like us. Shortly after our passage, he tries to pass off his wife as his sister for fear of his life. And she ends up in Pharaoh's harem in Egypt, freed only by God's judgment on Pharaoh. And he does it again elsewhere. And later he tries to take God's promises into his own hands with consequences that go well beyond himself. He responds in faith, but sometimes he also responds in fear. Because he's a human being, just like us. And God likes to use humans. God's call can be surprising or it can be difficult. Abraham was asked to leave his homeland, his family, which is a huge part of one's stability and security, especially in his time and place. And so by obeying, he's shifting his orientation from the security of his family line and his homeland. And he's shifting that to God's promises. But there's encouragement as he does so because God's call comes with blessing. There are great benefits to participating in God's work. There are blessings promised to Abram. God will make him into a great nation. God will bless him. It says that God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Essentially, that Abram will be protected from enemies. And as he obeys and arrives at the great tree of Morah in Shechem, God tells him he will give this land to his descendants. There is a benefit to Abram. Again, that is unearned. It might be conditional upon obedience. It's only after he moves that he learns that God is giving him, giving the land of Canaan to his descendants. But it's not a transaction for him or his descendants. It's not something that they earn. And the more you read Israel's history, the more you will see that that is not the case. All the more so because we're told at the end of chapter 11, in verse 30, now Sarai, his wife, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Add to that, Abram is 75 years old. Sarah, or Sarai, is about 10 years younger. These are not, these promises are not things that either of them can make happen. These are not the prime candidates for starting a nation. They don't even have children, and they're beyond the years of childbearing. These are things that God is going to do as Abram follows his plan. Contrast this with another episode back in chapter 11 when humans decide to build a tower and make a name for themselves, the Tower of Babel. It says in 11.4 that they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And God instead confuses their languages and their arrogance comes to nothing. 
And yet here we see God say to Abram, I will make your name great. It's God's doing. And with this comes descendants with a worldwide influence. This is not a transaction. Some people might abuse God's promise of blessing, treating it like a math equation. As if I put in so much, I will get so much in return. Usually with a focus on money. God can bless you materially, but he can also bless you a bunch of different ways that won't put a dime in your pocket. And the mercenary mindset doesn't work too well in God's kingdom. Because God will also often ask us things that don't pay off in this life. God may even ask people things that may cost them their lives, as was the case with most of the apostles, as is the case with many of our sisters and brothers around the world whose lives are in danger under persecution simply because they follow Jesus. Following God's call does not mean an easy life. But whatever life is, whether easy or hard, whether it takes you through poverty or riches, life is better with God than without. It's better doing things his way than not. And this word of blessing, the word bless, it's prominent in this passage, and it can refer to life as it was intended for us. Earlier, we saw God create and bless humans at the beginning of Genesis, and it results in a harmonious relationship with God. The supply of their physical needs, an emotional wholeness that only becomes threatened with sin. These are God's intentions for Abram's descendants, the people of Israel, and the blessing that God gives to them. It invites people into a reality that involves spiritual and emotional wholeness along with Material blessing at times. It's a wonderful way to live. Because it's life as God intended it. That's what blessing is. That's true prosperity. Too many of us stop there. We want to be privately pious. Read our Bibles. Go to church. Say our prayers before bedtime and live under God's blessing. And we may. But that's not what Abram and his descendants are being called to. Twice, God tells Abram what he and his descendants will do. Verse 2, you will be a blessing. Verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's call is to bless the world. We are blessed so that we may bless. We give away what we've been given. We receive God's love and we show it to others. When we receive material blessing, we share it with those in need. The joy of living life with our Creator, we invite others into it. 
This is our mission. This is our goal. This is our objective, to bless the world. One commentator put it this way. Up to this point in Genesis, God has been doing damage control. He's been kind of managing sin and its fallout among humans. But this call to Abram, it changes things. With this call, God makes move to bring the world back to himself through Abram and his descendants, alongside humans. And Abram's descendants become the nation of Israel, out of whom comes the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who invites us into participating in his advancing kingdom, the kingdom of the benevolent rule of God, where God has his way, where reality is as God intends it. And it advances now, restoring the world and its people to God. And one day he will bring it in its fullness. This promise to Abram, or Abraham, it's the heritage of all who follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is not just the heritage of Abraham's biological descendants. Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts it this way in Galatians 3. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. This is the heritage of all who would worship the God of Abraham. Last week we saw humans break stuff, break our reality, our relationships with our sin in Genesis 3. And today in this passage, God invites humans to be part of the fix, the restoration, the rescue mission. If you want to be part of something bigger than yourself, it does not get bigger than this. You can't get bigger than blessing the world. You can't get bigger than God's kingdom. I once spent two years with a team of guys who would run sprints at six in the morning just for a little bit of recognition in collegiate soccer. Division two collegiate soccer. Because our objective was to win championships. What are we willing to do to answer God's call? To bless the world to work toward our objective. This promise is the story that runs through our blood if Jesus is our Lord. And so if we call Jesus Lord, we are Abraham's descendants. We are Abraham's offspring by faith. And we need to be asking the question, how can I be a blessing? How can I give people a taste of God's heart And I see that in this church. 
I see the desire to bless the world. It's why we give to things like Covenant World Relief. It's why we do things like Operation Christmas Child, but it's also why this church was planted on this corner. The mission is here, and it's there. It's in our backyard, and it's halfway around the world. It's why we support the missionaries on our mission board, and it's why we do things like run the food tent for the YMCA's 50th anniversary celebration. To bless people, to let them know that God loves them. But wherever it is, whether our backyard or halfway around the world, in our faithfulness, we can look forward to God's blessing. And as we receive it, we can bless the world all the more. Let's continue worshiping.